0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Believe in Betting Chicago. My name is Joy Christopoulos and on today's episode we continue our Chicago sports movie podcast series with the movie Field of Dreams. And you know what? I love this movie so much that it is going to be a 2 parter pod on the second part a rousing round table with some good buddies of mine breaking down and talking about the film field of dreams but first and coming up right now a very special exclusive interview i have with the actor who played john kinsella in the movie field of dreams dwyer brown he's going to be talking today about playing the role and his book if you build it it's a great conversation i had a wonderful time and it is coming up right now check it out Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Believe in Betting Chicago podcast, the COO and co-founder of Fairy Bar and Barbed Wire Farms, America's favorite ghost dad. Some know him as John Kinsella, but I call him my friend from the corn, Dwyer Brown. Thank you for coming on the show. How are you?
1: Uh, I'm good, Joey. Great to
0: be here. Is this, um, happy belated Father's Day, first of all, and is this a, is this a busy time? Um, is this a seasonal thing with Field of Dreams? Is this one of those busier times for you?
1: It definitely is. Yeah. Yeah. Usually uh, sneaking up to Father's Day, people go, oh my gosh, I forgot to get something for death. So uh, I get book orders. Get Dwyer. Cameo (laughs) requests. Yeah. It's good.
0: That's great. That's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm really grateful. And um, in preparation, just a little brief backstory. We met very briefly uh, in a restaurant interaction encounter some months ago. You were very gracious. You and your wife, Lori, were very gracious with your time. I was able to take a picture with you. And uh, it was just kind of one of those moments where I thought I would email you and say, uh, "Just go for it and see if you wanted to come onto the pod." You had recommended to check out your book uh, and something that I encourage everyone to check out called "If You Build It." And I started reading the first thirty pages, and I have to be honest with you, I read the whole thing. Um, I've read the whole thing in the last couple of days, and I was hoping that maybe we can kind of touch on some of those those things in the book because truly, like a wonderful, wonderful piece of writing. And just in general, you know, was writing something that came easy for you? I know as performers, there's one, there's kind of two sides of the coin on that. Uh, did you enjoy the writing process of If You Build It?
1: Um, gosh, enjoy the writing process. Um, I mean, writing is a, is a hump, you know, I, I, I found that I could only do it if I got up at like one in the morning, and then I would write for as long as I had inspiration, you know, two or three hours, and then I'd go back to bed. Otherwise, if there was anything else to distract me, including my charming wife, I, I was not able to kind of stay consistent. Um, so, uh, I mean, I enjoyed the process. It's, it's a little like uh, acting, you know, like the rehearsals. I don't always enjoy rehearsals, but it makes it all worth it when you put together a great show. And, and I was pretty proud of the book. So, uh, and, and it's something I always wanted to do. So I guess in that way, yeah, the overall experience was enjoyable for sure.
0: Yeah, congratulations. I mean, honestly, um, such smooth use of detail and the way that you were able to conjure up pictures. I mean, the picture heads in my mind were kind of running on full tilt there throughout your book. And you did a really nice job too as well of sometimes when books get into too much detail, they can lose the pace of storytelling. But you're such a good storyteller that you were able to kind of manage both of those things. So um, for someone, like if I was to tell someone that had never read the book before what it's about, and I would just say kind of in general, it sort of feels like, Three streams kind of weaving in between each other, and they kind of sort of keep coming back. So I'm wondering if maybe we can touch on a couple of those different streams as we go along here. And I'm just kind of curious if you could give the audience a little brief background about a bit of your childhood, because there's a lot more eerie commonalities and similarities that eventually led to your performance that I think we all know of in Field of Dreams. I mean, these are sort of little crumbs in your childhood and through you growing up and maturing as a person kind of led you to that moment. I wonder if you can kind of just talk about that for a little bit.
1: Yeah, uh, in, in to go back to enjoyable writing process, one of the things that was enjoyable was it was only through writing all that stuff that I kind of linked all those things and how how incredible it was that I'd come from this, you know, farm existence and ended up back on the farm, but I had to go all the way to Hollywood and back to... to to have that experience. But uh, I, I grew up in, in the suburbs of Pittsburgh and, and, and Ohio. And when I was nine years old, my dad decided to move us all out into a farm, a uh, 52 acre farm in the middle of nowhere in Northeast Ohio. Um, the house that he decided to buy was in such terrible condition that the, the, the farmer who was selling us the 52 acres threw it in for free. Which should tell you a little bit about what kind of house it was. It had no indoor plumbing, so we were using an outhouse when I was nine and ten years old uh, for a couple years until we built an indoor bathroom. So um, it was a culture shock, uh, you know, to say the least. It, it, at the time, shows like Green Acres and 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 those kind of things were coming out, and and I, you know, I really think that that was a little bit of an inspiration for my dad. I think he really wanted to sort of have us to himself. So he moved us as far away from everyone else as he could. And, and you know, it was a, I mean, we worked very hard. My dad isn't an, was an architect by trade. And so he wanted to fix up this, you know, this tear down house, uh, 160 year old farmhouse. And so we spent our weekends kind of doing that, digging a basement by hand, tearing out every window and every door and replacing them. Uh, You know, it was, uh, it was a labor of love for him and a labor of child labor for us. Just kidding. You know, he he, he was, it it was work. But, you know, I, I do think, you know, to this day, I can swing a hammer pretty well. And it's, it's served me well in lean times in the acting business when I, you know, need to make some cash with some carpentry work.
0: Well, it's also interesting, typically, when they throw in the house for free, uh, it usually means that it's haunted and not the good way. Uh, so that'll happen <laughs> maybe maybe more or less. Well,
1: I can tell you from uh, there's pictures uh, on in the book of my house. There are two windows you can see from the front that you can see from the outside of the house, but you can't see them from the inside, which was a major kind of ghost story for us when we were kids. We figured out what had happened is the, the roof had caught fire at some point. And rather than kind of replace the roof, they just built the house up, put some windows in and then built another roof on top of it. So, uh, and then they just kind of, you know, drywalled off. Well, actually they used corrugated cardboard to seal the joists. Anyway, it was, uh, it was, yes, definitely had a spooky quality to it that um, I don't know it's one thing visiting a, 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 a haunted house. It's another one to live in it.
0: Well, I, thought, I just found it very interesting on two fronts. One The concept of uh, going on a farm and then, you know, taking that ticket to Hollywood. And then when you do find yourself uh, stepping into the light of that gray moment in your life, you're back on a farm uh, with, you know, with the creaky screen door and the whole deal. And then the other part, too, is I just sort of I felt a parallel kinship. Uh, My father built houses for a living, so I worked on construction sites, many a summer. And um, yeah, the work is not easy. And if it wasn't for the radio, I, which you guys probably didn't have, I'm not exactly sure if I would have perhaps lost my mind, but it's kind of this concept of uh, your hard work and that discipline created, not only helped you later on in life, but then also informed you and helped you want to express yourself as an actor. Um, and it's sort of that the, that tug and pull there. And I, I, was there a bit of maybe an explosion you know, once you got over 10, 12 years old, about more about expressing yourself.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, what I'm always struck with is, you know, in, in the movie, they say, if you build it, he will come. They don't say if you dream it, or if you imagine it, or if you, uh, you know, think about it a lot. The, the follow isn't, he will come.
0: There's a tangible uh, work, bedrock.
1: Right, the work ethic that my dad instilled in us uh, came in very handy in an acting career for which it was not really appropriate. You know, I worked harder at my career probably than, I mean, you know, a lot of times in the show business, the harder you work, the less success you have because people sense that desperation. And, you know, so it's a fine balance, but I was fortunate enough to sort of have a little bit of both. I was a dreamer and I had some, uh, some you know, work ethic. So I think those two can, can take, carry you a long way in whatever you want to do, you know, really.
0: Yeah, I have some uh, I have some interesting thoughts and questions for you that about that. But I also wanted to kind of ask you. So uh, you're growing up in Ohio, and then uh, you spent some time in Chicago uh, in the theater scene. Something that I know uh, very well. Now I did uh, I did uh, the comedy thing, so I was a little more second city. But you know, I did the Goodman shows. I did all that stuff. I just want to hear a little bit about not just about your experience on stage in Chicago, but just kind of living in the city what you got out of it and maybe some thoughts on how you still look back and reflect on that now.
1: Yeah. uh, So, so when I graduated from, from a small liberal arts school in in Ohio, I, I was trying to get a job in advertising. My big plan was then I'd get a job in in New York city and then audition on the side. I mean, that's how naive I was that, that such a thing could happen, but nonetheless, there were no advertising jobs. There was a downturn in the economy in, in 1980. And so I thought, Uh, you know LA was just too far I couldn't even imagine what LA was like and so Chicago was very appealing to me it had uh, it had the it's kind of the improv capital of the world probably still and and so uh, I I had done some improv in college so I was super excited to go be at Second City and so off I went to Chicago with $300 in my pocket thinking I was rich and that that was going to last me a good year before I uh, (laughs) before I had to get a job but you know it's just those, you know, if I, if I hadn't been so naive, I never would have done a lot of the things that I did. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, I, I managed to find an apartment and I went to as many shows as I could. I, I was, I'd grown up on a farm, you know, like, seeing the incredible uh, theater scene in Chicago was just amazing to me, going to the organic and to Steppenwolf when they were just fledgling. I was watching, you know, Malkovich and Gary Sinise and those guys Doing these incredible shows, and you know, uh, uh, Bill Peterson, and these people have gone on to have huge careers, but they were just starting out as I was. You know, they were a few years ahead of me, and it was very inspiring. You know, uh, I managed to get in a few shows there, and I just loved Chicago. It's such a great city, very Midwestern in in demeanor, which I loved. It was very welcoming to some kid who, you know, didn't know a hay bale from a, a you know from a, a, a you know a street uh uh corner or whatever, you know, I was I was so green, but it, it was very, very welcoming and and you know, had a great time there. I was sort of reluctant to leave, but I had a kind of fluke opportunity to go to Los Angeles uh during pilot season. Back then they, you know, they were two times out of the year when they were casting pilots and my agent in Chicago kind of just sponsored me to come out here and I ended up uh getting in the thornbirds in my little six-week foray and 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 that started things rolling and then I moved out here and have been here ever since, but I look back very fondly to my to my year and a half, i guess in chicago i mean it it was just it was such a great soft landing for me to be able to start my career there, get my you know earn some chops doing theater and uh it it really ended up being I, I still look back anytime I can go to chicago it's a it's a plus for me I love it,
0: and in such a strange twist, you move out to Los Angeles and then you get an opportunity to be in a movie like To Live and Die in L.A., which has Billy Peterson in it and William Friedkin. And I am a huge William Friedkin fan. And if I'm getting the IMDb correct, you worked with him twice, no?
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, he the first uh, uh, interview in, in To Live and Die in L.A., uh, he said, oh, let's just improv. So I was doing an improv with Bill Friedkin about this role. It was a fairly small role of a doctor in this thing. And I guess he liked it. But when it, when it came around to um, – to The Guardian, which just, which happened the, the, the next movie after Field of Dreams, I came in for an interview and uh, he said, nice to meet you. And I said, well, actually, uh, we've worked together before. And he was so embarrassed, I think, in front of his producers. I think that's half the reason I got the job uh, when I had to explain to him that, yeah, I was into Live and Die in LA and uh, he was backpedaling. And anyway, uh, but yeah, Billy, Billy is a, a force to be reckoned with and, and was a lot of fun to work with.
0: Yeah, uh, such an, I mean, obviously my experience is just through interviews and hearing him, but obviously Chicago background, a guy that like kind of cut his teeth at WGN and a borderline journalist. And he is such a beautiful orator and storyteller. Um, On set, did he, does that personality transfer all the time? I know you got to get some work done too as well. I mean, was he a little bit more introspective and thoughtful in terms of the work that he needed to do? Or did he still have that kind of, it's almost like a larger than life the way that he communicates sometimes.
1: Yeah. I mean, they, they don't call him hurricane Billy for nothing, but they, uh, he, he, what, what I couldn't, what I was surprised at is how smart he is very, very smart and, and, and really well-educated in art. I mean, he does for the Getty museum, he does some of their audio tours. I mean, he is a very, very smart man and very thorough in his preparation. He usually, I mean with Guardian anyway, he would, He had paintings that he used as images to draw him into the creativity of the scenes and stuff that we work on, which was pretty fascinating. Um, But what's also interesting is on a day-to-day basis, he, the only way I can describe it is he acts like a five-year-old child in the best and worst of of both of the, of of what can come from a five-year-old child. Incredible creativity and you know capriciousness and let's change that let's do this let's do this and you know and, and another you know the other side of it is he can be very you know you know childlike and 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 uh you know petulant and and but it's a pretty good combination that i think works for him in a lot of cases you know so uh but it's a fascinating combination to have somebody who is so so intelligent and and creative, and planning, and then also have a very impulsive, childlike side of them as well.
0: Yeah, a bit of the dream in life to become such an auteur or a genius where you, it's just, it's just uh, you know, Friedkin being Friedkin, maybe, just like a little bit, like, let's just let him roll, because I think at the end of the day, I think we're going to get the, the, the answer to this equation here.
1: Right, and he had done enough movies to know that it was a combination that worked for him, but it is kind of weird. It's a little, you have to be out of control to get to the final result. And that can be very unnerving. I, I I'm sure for him, but also for, as an actor, you're thinking like, what are we doing? Why are we, you know, uh, but you know, it, it, you know, if it works, you know, don't fix it, I guess.
0: Hey, trust the process. Uh, <laughs> I think that that applies to many other things in life. So um, I do, I did really enjoy the section of you spending the time in Chicago. My favorite part obviously was that uh not that you learned how to do it, but it seemed like uh, hugging became uh, a new something that you were able to pick up in Chicago, which I know uh, very, very well. And it just kind of brought me back to those more innocent theater days of it's like opening night and everyone circles up and they just tell each other that they're family and that they love each other. And then they go out. And then the next night after opening night, the second night sucks. Uh, you know, I'm like always. <laughs> always, always never, never quite the same. Yeah. But I did want to, there was another interesting one. And in, it's uh it's actually it's actually in the beginning portion of the book which is a three uh, free 30 page preview on your website right now dwyerbrown.com about the the night in 1986 in halloween and i'm wondering if you could just maybe uh tell a more a streamlined portion of that story of just where you were at in the part of your career at that time um, some of the roles that you were playing, uh, some of the characters that maybe perhaps were failing to survive uh, set events within within the performances, and and maybe uh, tell us a little bit of that story because I think we all know where it ends up going in
1: 1989. Yeah, um, well, after leaving Chicago, where it's a hardworking blue-collar town, where you know I would walk to the agents you know, all the time and meet, talk with them and meet with them. Coming to LA was another culture shock because it's a different industry out here and it's very much more wait for the phone to ring kind of, uh, uh, kind of experience. So, uh, coming out here, I, you know, it, it, it took me a while to, to adapt. And, um, And so, uh, I forget the question.
0: (laughs) Oh, well, so the question was 1986, it's Halloween. Um, and and you were just, and you you're in such a wonderful way, kind of describing some of the past roles that you had been playing and you had a knack for something, uh, something kept happening to you in your roles.
1: Yeah. I ended up starting with the Thornbirds, which was the first job I got out here. I, I get killed by a boar. I played Stewie Cleary. You know, I, I referred to it as bored to death, but, uh, that was just one in a long series of probably three or four years where I died in every single show I was in. I, I'd be shot to death in, in in one episode of something, and then I'd I'd get hung, and then I'm doing plays, and I was I was hanged in a play. I had a heart attack in a play. It was just so weird that having come out here and 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 been in the movie To Live and Die in L.A., I was literally dying in L.A. in every job I was in. You know, and I'd have to call my mom. Hey, mom, I got this show, and she'd be like. Do you die in it? I'm like, yeah, yeah, but it's still a good part, you know. So it it was just one of those things that was, you know, just kind of a private joke. But you can't help but sort of think like, geez, my career is really dying, you know, literally and figuratively. Uh, And 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 so you know, one one Halloween, I was just kind of getting ready. I was dressing up as as Jimmy Stewart in from uh, from It's a Wonderful Life in the scene where he's going to lasso the moon. He's got you know the little antique football outfit on and so I was just checking it out, and I—I I guess I was just overwhelmed with sort of the frustration of of being in this big city now and feeling like a small fish in a big pond, as opposed to you know being a big fish in the in the middle of nowhere in Ohio. And but I loved that movie, and because I was kind of looking at the at the video screen and of of him, uh, I said, "Gosh, if I could just be in a movie like It's a Wonderful Life, that I always felt was so meaningful and." offers people such an opportunity to try to imagine the world that 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 they know without them in it and and to recognize what a beautiful thing we all bring in the smallest of ways to our lives you know or at least the way i i try to look at it i think everybody has their value and so i thought gosh if i could be in a movie like that that people will look at for decades and decades and decades and and draw meaning and inspiration from then I would be happy, and you know, I could end my my suffering, uh, my dying acting career if I could just get in one of those movies. And then, you know, within a year or two, uh, along came Field of Dreams, which, on the surface, did not necessarily look like it was going to be that kind of movie. But the fact that we're talking about it here, 31 years later, I, I think it it has, you know, become the Field of Dreams. I mean, the, the It's a Wonderful Life for for a different generation.
0: And uh, you are just your agent. So let me get this straight. He's already dead, right? I'm not going to be doing any any dying. Uh, <laughs> instead, in. of,
1: yeah, instead of dying at the end of this episode, in this movie, I'm dead before the movie even starts. So I don't know if that's progress or... or uh...
0: Today's episode of Believe in Betting Chicago is brought to you by BetOnline.ag. And right now, there is no shortage of action going on with our exclusive partner, BetOnline.ag. Sports are slowly making their way back. UFC, boxing, NASCAR, soccer and golf leading the way, and BetOnline.ag has all the best odds, lines, for the upcoming games and matches. So looking for something else other than sports? BetOnline.ag has got you covered with hundreds of casino games, poker tournaments, and all the best props in the business. So what are you waiting for? Use your mobile device and join right now. Go to BetOnline.ag to receive your welcome bonus and start playing today. BetOnline.ag, your online wagering experts. Well, I found such sublime uh, symmetry in, in it all. And I'm I'm wondering if perhaps, I don't even know if this would be a question, but maybe if you could maybe offer up some advice for people that are in the industry, maybe not just actors, but other creatives in this world about, and this concept that I think about a lot where I feel like sometimes in life, we focus too much on either the mistakes or the woulda, coulda, shouldas, or the, the things of what we have. And maybe not necessarily recognizing that the things that, Maybe we've had, if we haven't met those expectations, maybe those are small little steps that lead you towards that great success. And, I, and obviously, I don't think that you have any regrets in life about anything, but at that time, you were, you were at a place where you felt like you were searching for something more, or asking, are these acting roles, is this going to be it? But in a weird way, those roles were preparing you to play something that was so important and um, I don't know, I just, I find that so invigorating just in terms of life. And what, for people that are out there like auditioning or maybe booking that guest star role and, and they're, they're not getting to exactly the place that they want to be. What could, what kind of advice could you impart to that type of person right now?
1: Um, well, t- you know, what's interesting about show business is that it's uh, publicly so visible. Uh, I remember, you know, I'm doing a- shows where I'm dying on TV episodes and John Cusack, who I knew from Chicago, and we had the same agent, started out at the same time, roughly, and Aiden Quinn, these guys' careers were skyrocketing, and I'm getting killed on, on, you know, an episode of uh, The Fall Guy or something, you know, so uh, it's very easy to compare yourself, and, you know, and because those people are having success, and in a very public way, it's on the cover of all the trades, it's, you know, they're getting interviewed, you know, it's, it can be very, uh, it can really destroy your self confidence, you know, and, and I found myself in that many times. I've had a lot of, watched a lot of people kind of climb the ladder, you know, past me. And, and, but I guess what I learned in the long term was, I think, in particular, I think it's more valid these days, is I think learning to write stuff for yourself is one of the best things you can do, because it, it's something you can do alone. While you're waiting for the phone to ring, and these days, which wasn't true when I went through, there's so many uh, venues that you can put that stuff out there. YouTube and everything else. Look how many stars have happened from their YouTube. I mean, you know, Justin Bieber and you know all these people have made their first foray. Uh, you know, and all these guys who are internet stars now, that they're writing their own material and and producing it and making it at home. And nothing is more attractive than somebody who's working and creating and, and doing that stuff. In my day, what I did, I started three different theater groups in in, in LA and, and, and up here in Ojai where I live now and, and uh, the Ojai Playwrights Conference, which is still in existence. And all those things kept me focused on my work and not so much on what's happening. Because you, to some degree, it's very hard to control what, how the world accepts you I mean, you know, Vincent Van Gogh would not have looked back on his career as very successful if he'd done it while he was alive. You know, he, he you know, now his paintings are worth millions, but he struggled and and I struggled and, uh, you know, quit a few times just because I was so frustrated. But I found that once I got away from the disappointment and the rejection and all that, I would go like, well, but it's still what I love to do. I, I want to move people. I want them to... You know, someday see something that I did that makes them reevaluate their lives or make changes or even just value themselves. And it's much easier to do that from my point of view now, looking back at my career. You know, uh, there's a lot of things I didn't succeed at, you know, nearly as much as I wanted to. You know, I, I, pro- I suppose I wanted to be Tom Cruise. I mean, I met, I auditioned against Tom Cruise for Risky Business. And, uh, you know, and then watch what happened to him. And I auditioned against Brad Pitt for Thelma and Louise, you know, which those were the movies that started their career. So how do you, how can you react to that afterwards other than to say, well, I'm not as good as they are. They're better than me. I'm a failure. You know, you can really go into a downward spiral, but uh, you know, the, looking back on it now, I realized, I mean, I, I wouldn't trade places with either of those guys right now. You know, I mean, I have a very nice life and, and a uh, wonderful wife and kids. And, you know, I'm very happy and would not like the, the, the bright glow of uh, celebrity on me 24 hours a day, the way they have. And, 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 so, you know, it might be sour grapes, but I really am happy with my life. And, and I also, you know, when I go back to Ohio to the farm I grew up on and I think, Oh my gosh, how did you get from here to, you know, being in dozens of TV shows and movies and and being in plays all across the country. And, uh, you know, it's it's really kind of remarkable. And it's so much easier for me to pat myself on the back now than when you're in the middle of it. And whatever you have isn't enough. I'm doing the lead role in a Bill Friedkin movie. And it was, I think, at that moment that I realized, wow, you're never going to be happy. There's nothing better than working with an academy award-winning director in a studio movie where you're the lead with two beautiful co-stars. And, you know, and it really made me realize that you have to find that sense of satisfaction and happiness from within. And, uh, and I just, you know, set about doing that. Um, And, you know, it, that was also a good move, but it came out of rejection and, and failure, if if you will. Uh, And, and I think, you know, we, we too often judge failure and, and obstacles and, and don't realize that it's the only way we grow. It's the only way we get better. If you if you succeed at everything, you you just keep succeeding and you you know, you, you never learn that, oh there's another way or so anyway.
0: Yeah, I always believe that as long as something exists creatively or whatever you can always look at it as a uh, a piece of achievement and be something that maybe you can look back on and, and maybe they will always find an audience for it somehow, one way or the other. And I also always try and tell myself, especially with these, uh, the wonderful moments that we get to experience either as actors or just, you know, out here in the entertainment business, if my nine-year-old self would be excited um, if, that I was doing this at that time, um, I can live with that. Um, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll be okay with that. And honestly, man, I, I'm going to pump you up for a second here. Um, you shirtless on the bed and Thelma Louise, I, I, it would, it would have worked. I think just fine. I told my mother the other day that I was getting the opportunity to interview you. And she goes, Joey, when he takes off that catcher mask, I just went, whoa, I think she could, she couldn't even construct sentences anymore. She just went handsome. And so I jokingly said to her, I was like, mom, what's that? Noise on the other end of the phone. I hear your your knees buckling a little bit. Is that the clicking of your knees? Oh, and she goes, "Joey, I'm already on the floor." So <laughs> you know, I think. Well, thank your mom for me. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so one of the questions I kind of wanted to ask you about Field of Dreams, and this sort of ties into what we're talking about, was um, you came up uh, in in the course of the book, you had actually mentioned it's very very small but it kind of came to my attention about how um phil alden robinson the director of the film um you know you're out there and you're obviously the, the great story of you know you make three films right the film you write the film you shoot and then the film you edit and sometimes they're three completely different pieces and and you would mention that phil you you had sensed in a weird way that phil maybe felt like he didn't exactly when he left with all the film that maybe he didn't exactly get the movie that he had set out to make on day one, which is very, very funny. And I also went ahead, I've watched the special features of field of dreams and all stuff. And he talks about very freely in interviews days where he would just kind of stand around and he would need 20 minutes to figure out how to block the thing. Or he would need 20 minutes or an hour to go back and rewrite a couple of lines. And, and, and can you maybe talk about not only witnessing and experiencing that sort of process, or maybe what kind of film did you think that he was going to have, you know, in, in your own mind's eye?
1: Well, you know, Phil is a great guy, and he's primarily a writer. So he's very cerebral, uh, he's very intelligent. And, you know, Field of Dreams was only his second feature. He had written several films, Rhinestone Cowboy, and All of Me, and some great comic films. And But, you know, directing was a was fairly new to him. And there were more things that went wrong while we were shooting Field of Dreams. I mean, the corn wouldn't grow. So imagine if you're the director of this movie. You know, the farmers don't care. They know the rain will come in August or September and they'll catch up, but you're shooting a movie. You've got this window with stars that have to go shoot other movies and the corn is knee high. How are you gonna shoot these old time players walking out of knee high corn? It's, it's absurd.
0: Steroids, if, sir. Steroids for corn.
1: Yeah. Director, <laughs> think, imagine the pressure he was under, you know, I mean, Universal had given him this money and, you know, I mean, there's only so many solutions and they tried all of them. They they ended up getting special permission to water the corn because, you know, out there farmers, like I said, just wait for the rain. They got special permission to water the corn. They, they had an insurance policy. They took an insurance policy out on the corn with loins of London for like $3 million. So when, and they also ordered 30,000 fa- uh, fake stalks of silk corn from Hong Kong, you know, that they were gonna shove into the ground and we were gonna walk out of that and it was supposed to look like a cornfield. I mean, that's how desperate they were. And, uh, you know, it was it was a drought that summer. It was just hot every day. So we're shooting outside in this knee high corn and, you know, they had to shoot every other scene of the movie that didn't involve corn until it grew because it was just no point in doing it. So uh, fortunately, uh in that heat throwing water on that corn it just started growing like crazy to the point that when when we wanted to shoot Kevin in the corn it was a 2 feet over his head you couldn't even see him so they had to use apple boxes and build a, a a platform for him to walk on between the rows of corn so that it looked like he was inspecting the leaves and you could see what he was doing anyway it was just that kind of comedy of errors where if it's not one thing it was another and you know Phil was you know, if it had gone smoothly, it was his second feature, there would have been plenty of problems. He had imagined all these great elaborate shots and and tracking. And, you know, uh, so when he got there, it was just, he, he was behind schedule. He had to just shoot stuff as clean and basic and, you know, TV as you can get. And, I mean, there are some, obviously some beautiful shots, but what was smart is it forced him to pare down all of his I mean he admits to this day that if he'd done all the artsy shots he wanted to do it probably would have distracted from the story and I think that's what ended up happening so well was that it was a simple story and when it's when it's such a fantastical premise that somebody builds a baseball field and players come from back back from the dead to have a game on the field I mean that's pretty bizarre if if he had you know accented that with you know stretchy camera shots and weird Point of view things. I think it would have taken away from it. The the it works so well because Kevin is plays such a kind of <clears throat> you know simple guy thrown into extraordinary circumstances. And I think the the, the beautiful cinematography by uh, uh, John Lindsay accentuated all that, and I think made it made it it told the story better. I think, but it, at the time you could not have told Phil that that, that was the case. He was sure every day that his movie was never going to come out because he had missed every opportunity to make it what he imagined was, was good and creative and, and unique.
0: And who knew that he would have James Horner's score uh, over the top of it, which is just, I mean, what can we, I, we could do a whole nother podcast on James Horner, but let's just say that obviously an incredible genius. Um, and, you know, please go ahead. I'd love, I'd love to hear.
1: Phil told me that when Horner came to see, uh, he he sat in on a screening when it was almost done to so start working on the score. He was sitting in there with with his agent, uh, Horner and his agent and and Phil and and so they they were watching the movie and before the movie was over, uh, Horner leaves and feels like, uh, gosh, you know, thinking of course at this point that he hated the movie and that he's embarrassed and you know so and and he asks his agent, well, where is he? he says, I don't know where he is. So, so they'd go kind of looking for him. And Phil finds him in the bathroom near the screening room and he's clearly pulling himself together. And he says, you know, he, I guess Horner's dad had been, he'd worked in, in show business as a, I think an art designer or something. And, and it spent very little time with him and they had a very strained relationship. So of course, when it gets to the end of the movie, you know, so in the bathroom, Horner says, you have to let me score this movie. And, and Phil of course was relieved because thinking he had been rejected when in fact he had been so overwhelmed, even with the temp track that they were watching the movie with uh, you know, and and the rest is history. I mean, obviously that's, that, that score, I mean, it was nominated for an Academy award and it, it remains. I, every, I see dozens of movies since then and I go, Oh my gosh, that's, they, they just stole the Field of Dreams score. I mean, it's so haunting and powerful and, creates such a wonderful momentum. And yeah, how could Phil have anticipated? To me, that was the single most, uh, the biggest difference in in the movie that we shot to the movie that I saw at the cast and crew screening. It was, it was, you know, it, it just pushes that movie to to my appearance. I mean, I had no idea. I thought when we were shooting that movie, this was just, you know, another five minute scene at the end of a movie that's kind of wrapping up a loose end because the book, the father appears early in the book and kind of is throughout the 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 novel, it, it didn't have the import that Phil's brilliant move of having it revealed at the end that makes that moment so important. I didn't even anticipate that. Having read the script and everything else, I was I was blindsided the way everybody else was, you know, strangely, because I know I'm in it. I know my scene's coming up, but i suddenly there i am and that score had had carried us across the the prairie like a storm coming and it was you know it was really spectacular but it was yeah it was a late dawning for me as well as to is the import of of my little scene was going to
0: have in that movie well and it's just it's just so interesting to hear right because you know that's you know people talk about movie magic right and the components that everything that has to come together to create something that's beautiful like to hear phil and I don't want to mean this to sound derogatory at all, but almost maybe overcompensate he's such a brilliant writer, and to overcompensate and be like, "I need these shots, I want this overhead. I want this tracking. I want this and that to make it look beautiful. When little did he know that he had created such a beautiful script that he was going to hand over to truly amazing actors. I mean, uh, when I met you, you allowed me to fanboy a little bit, but you know everyone always goes to Dad, I want to have a catch, but truly my favorite line of yours is when ray kinsella asks his father is there a heaven and you give him that oh yeah the oh yeah of just of just this confidence of this ease of almost like the burden and calm and the burden and fear of you know are our loved ones okay when they move on and, and is and are the loved ones that have worked so hard in all of our years like are they okay are they at peace and Just that line that you give there is just such a beautiful performance. And that's the thing about Field of Dreams, right, is that you, the movie changes you. You walk out, not like change for the rest of your life, but you kind of know what I'm saying. You just, you feel that possibility that, that it is, that something like this can happen, that. The, the shackles and the slavery of time or whatever, we can actually break apart from that and see something else that's maybe possible. And it's just really fun to hear all these different elements and everything kind of coming together into this one uh, cohesive piece. Now that obviously is not only the, one of the greatest movies of all time, but has a tourist attraction. And um, one of the best parts of your book is that these, they're these vignettes or these short stories of People that come up to you that aren't just field of dreams fans that aren't just asking you maybe to bellow out famous lines but actually have their own personal stories of how the movie affected them, how soon after the movie came out did that start happening, and what was your first initial reaction to it because I think um, as as you've gone along like I think you've shown even with my interaction with meeting you first, like you were very much someone that's open to meeting people and hearing their stories and and just connecting even on a basic, you know, you know, level and just in one moment. I mean, did that was that easy for you at first when people would tell you these personal stories or, or how did that hit you?
1: Well, it was it probably happened within a few months of the release of the movie and the the first few times were so surprising because I, you know, I'd worked in Hollywood for 6 or 7 years and rarely get recognized on the street for some character who died in the end of a <laughs> episode or something. I was into Thornbirds Thornbirds, and there, there's certainly some hardcore fans, but uh, it really took me by surprise. Cause the first time it happened, I was camping and I was unshaven and smelling like smoke. And I was just in the store and this guy was kind of eyeing me. And I was, you know, I was uh, a couple hours outside of LA where nobody should know who I am. And this guy was like, did I go to high school with you? And I said, Oh, no, I'm, I'm from Ohio. Sorry. You know, and tried to shuffle away from him. And he's like, oh my God, you're that guy from Field of Dreams. And I was like, wow. I mean, you know, five minutes on screen. I was like, so I, I was curious, just like what did what happened to this guy that he wants to, anyway, he went on to tell me how he, you know, his dad and him had had a huge fight and they hadn't spoken for five years or whatever. And and they he saw that movie and just went to his dad's house and dragged him to watch the movie together and that they got over. I mean, he was crying. I'm in this little bait shop, <laughs> with this guy, and he's crying, and I'm crying, and you know, patting each other on my back, because you know, I mean, my dad died 30 days before I went to go shoot that movie, so I had my own, you know, dad issues to bring to that movie, and so we have this strange encounter, well, where, where he cries, I cry, we're hugging, and then we have to kind of awkwardly part. Uh, yeah, see you later, or you know, whatever. And I was just like mind blown and then it would happen again in a couple months in an airport somebody would say oh my gosh you know i my dad never played catch with me and i you know learned to have a relationship with other men or you know it would it would whether it was i had a great relationship with my dad and that movie makes me cry or i had a terrible relationship with my dad and that movie makes me cry they would share these stories with me because i happened to be the face that was 40 feet tall in front of them when all these feelings came out and you know i I was so fascinated with it, and because it was what I dreamed of being an actor for was to be do what I love to do and have it mean so much to people that that you know it leaves an indelible mark on them. Now you know obviously i didn't this didn't just happen to me. I was lucky enough to get in this brilliant movie from the brilliant book and you know all the other things that have to happen to make that possible, but nonetheless. Something in my acting career had this effect on people. So I started taking notes about these little things because they were all so different, so the same, but so different. And I just was kind of keeping track of them. I, I thought this was happening to Phil Robinson. I figured it was happening to Kevin and James Earl. People were tearfully telling them. And it was only when I, you know, when I sort of decided to write the book. I was sort of waiting for Kevin to write a book about Field of Dreams. And, and then it, when, after 25 years and it didn't happen, I thought, well, this probably isn't gonna happen. And then I realized, well, if you run into Kevin Costner in an airport, you're gonna talk to him about Dances with Wolves or, or you know, all the other, Bull Durham, all the other amazing movies he was in. You run, you're probably not gonna recognize Phil Robinson you know, walking quietly through an airport unless you're some kind of you know film nerd or something. But so it was because it was my face at that moment in that film, that I was kind of imbued with this fatherly quality of that, that, that is, I think, A, approachable, and B, uh, you know, people feel that by talking to me, they can maybe let go of some of this stuff or finally just tell somebody, this is how I felt about my dad. And so, and because of losing my dad when I did, it it became a touchstone for me as well. So I, you know, began to sort of welcome these meetings as awkward as they could be when I'm trying to have dinner with somebody or something else. I sort of felt like it's my penance, as they say in the movie. You know, it's it's way I could stay in touch with my dad. And, you know, and it, it passes down the way baseball passes down, usually from fathers to sons. And I don't know, it was all so beautiful. And it was... you know, that was part of the, that was really the impetus of the book in the first place was to write these stories down. And once I started writing those stories then I thought, geez, I have my own dad's story. So I wrote that down and then, well, you can't really understand what my dad, my relation with my dad was if you don't realize I grew up on a farm and that I was kind of leaving, doing the heroic journey that, you know, that everyone has to, to leave home, to find that thing, that void that you can't fill. And then, come back home to Iowa even though it's a couple states over and to have this you know to finally get the recognition or the you know the the culmination the catharsis of your journey you know back from where you started and and anyway so it was just in the writing of it that i realized all this stuff was kind of beautiful and poetic and 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 seemed to serve the story so so between the as you asked earlier i i used these little nine or 10 episodes of people i've run into which is just a Uh, a sample of all the other encounters I've had and my growing up with my dad and the third part of the story is sort of the fun we had shooting the movie, which was I knew fans would be interested in because i have been asked so many times, like, what was it like to meet Kevin and, and what's what Costner like? Yeah. What's, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I resisted. Yeah. Thank you. But <laughs> yeah, you yeah. to, uh, I mean, it, 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 there's a joke in the book where after, as soon as people find out I was in field of dreams, inevitably, the next question is what's Costner like? Yeah, yeah So, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and that's, it, it's funny that even that is like, people don't realize that, you know, they come up to me and ask me what Costner's like, like, you know, it's just a funny thing and, and but I've come to you know just kind of enjoy it because I mean you know I, I would ask the same question would, you know what's tom Hanks like what's you know it, it's just a natural uh, reaction, but anyway, hopefully in the movie I try to uh, you know uh, weave those three stories together in, into a, a kind of a nice narrative that keeps you jumping from time frames, but uh, anyway, it was fun when it was done, and it also just helped me realize what an important part in my you know, my life and my career that that movie has, has become.
0: Well, and it's just so wonderful because I mean, you know, I just think we, I think everyone is very lucky to have you to be able to step up and take that role. You have, you have a wonderful quote in your book, and I think I'm probably going to paraphrase paraphrase and butcher it, but it's something along the lines of uh, the characters in the movie and that the world is made up of Ray's and Annie's and Terrence's. And then there's the other group that's Mark, who is the Timothy Busfield, the, the non-believer char- character. And I just keep feeling like with these stories that people seem to have this connection to you, not just because of the movie and the character, but they, they must feel something from you where they want to come up and and give their testimony of either their redemption or of how they've healed somehow, or how just through obviously the magic of movie making and art and creation just in general, that they've been able to see something that was painful in their lives from a different perspective and allow them to, you know, maybe put that to rest or maybe find some sort of solace and and they're able to come up to you and tell their stories. And, and, and I think that, maybe not everyone would be so willing. You know what I mean? Like, you know, let me get back to my cheeseburger. Thank you so much. Thank you so very much. But you were able to hear those stories and then those stories stuck with you as well. Like what a beautiful transfer of, you know, just communication between people.
1: Yeah, I I guess I, I really did try to welcome it because I'm, as much as I've been an actor all these years and lived in Hollywood and met all kinds of celebrities, I'm still that farm boy who, you know, if I had an opportunity to meet, you know, Sandy Koufax or, you know, or Jimmy Stewart, I want to be a little bit of a fanboy. I want them to take me in. And, you know, because what I've realized later on is all expression of art is only half the equation. You know, just like I was saying with with Van Gogh, nobody appreciated or very few people appreciated his art in the moment. And what that does to your soul, it it, it wears away at it, you know it's only when, you know, at the end of a play, everybody, the characters come out and they take a bow and you're supposed to applaud for them. Thank you for taking me to this special place and all that. And without that curtain call, the transaction is incomplete in my mind. And 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 so often in film, we never get that curtain call because, you know, it takes a year for the movie to get edited. And then it comes out in all these movie theaters across the country, and you're never present, you know, to actually get that. So, if somebody is going to be willing to overcome the embarrassment and uh, of coming up to me and, and saying something nice to me, how, how should I, you know, tell them uh, I'm busy, you know, like to me, it's, it's their way of saying, you know, thank you. And, you know, if you say thank you to somebody and they don't say you're welcome or it's nothing or whatever you want to say, the the transaction isn't complete. So I, I try to take that on because I think it, it means a lot to people and it means a lot to me, you know, like I said, this was my dream. You know, who, who gets to walk around? I mean, you know, plum, plumbers don't get to walk around and have, uh, have people come up to them and say, oh my gosh, the way you put that p trap in my toilet, oh my gosh, it's really worked great and thank you so much. And oh, you painted my house, that's amazing. Here, I'm gonna give you an extra $10 today for what you did 10 years ago. I mean, that's the kind of life we get to live as, as actors. You know, we get residual payments and we get residual love from people for something we did years ago. And to, to kind of shun that, I think is, is would, would be a shame.
0: Well, I thank you so much for coming on to the pod. I know you have to get going. Um, I'm really just very grateful uh, for, coming, for you coming on and just giving me some time. And, and honestly, per what you were just talking about, I, I just want to tell everyone a quick story of uh, I was working at a pizzeria in Santa Monica. You and your wife came in one day, and, um, and let me just tell you, you know, I get the opportunity to uh, wait on celebrities all the time. And depending upon my, my personal, whatever I try and treat every uh, celebrity or person that I recognize as a human being first. And then maybe in the end, I'll, I'll say something out of my own, my own personal heart. And and let me just tell you that, uh, I recognized you right away. Wanted to say something to you. And throughout the course of that meal, I just want to tell you that I, uh, you know, and this is not to sound creepy, but restaurant, you know, servers, we're, we're observant of different customers. We try and take the temperature of, of what kind of, you know, can we be nice? Should we just leave the person alone? And you guys just seem to be having just a wonderful day. And, um, you know, just the smiles on your guys' faces. Uh, I'll admit, I gave you a couple of spicy margaritas and maybe you guys were dancing uh, at some point in the middle of the restaurant. And I don't know, man. I just felt like a real uh, shot of life. And I just want you to know that I remember that day not about meeting John Kinsella, about meeting Dwyer Brown. And that was really, really cool. And, um, and I just kind of felt that from you guys. And, uh, and then, yeah, you are just so nice enough to obviously reply to this email and then come on. And I really appreciate it. And remember, you were in a movie with Jimmy Stewart, my friend. They got him into the field of, like, The Wonderful Life playing on the TV. <laughs> um, it, it, it happens. So don't ever let anyone take that away from you. Well, Joey, thank you
1: so much. I, I really do try to, I, I've had such a wonderful life, really lucky to have been, to have grown up on a farm, lucky to have moved out here and live in a beautiful state with, you know, it, and I have a lovely wife, two great kids. I mean, I I am very happy, you know, so I, I like to share that with people because, I think sometimes people forget like, hey, I've got a pretty good life. You know, there's so many things that we can worry about. Certainly, you know, with, with all that's going on in the world right now. But another good part of that is the smiles we can give to each other, the, the fun we can have ourselves. And, and hopefully it, you know, it, it rubs off a little bit. I'm, I'm really grateful that you took the time to tell me that. Thank you, Joey.
0: Well, you've given people so many smiles. And, and real quick, 10 seconds. Oh hi Playwrights, please tell us just really quickly about it. Maybe there's a website or maybe there's, I, I don't know if they, there's anything coming up right imminently but please tell us some more about that real quick
1: uh yeah oh playwrights conference uh started uh, i don't know gosh 15 years ago now it's for uh playwrights with new plays and uh they come up here for a week in oh and 10 days really to rework the play and they work it in front of um, audiences and not audiences and they do a culmination where they uh you know have a performance what they sell tickets to of course this year it's all been delayed but it's been going steady for 20 years. A bunch of plays have gone on to Broadway and and, and East End and London. And I mean, it started very humbly, but it's really become. A, it's called the Ojai Playwrights Conference. And yeah, by all means, check out their uh, check out their website. It's a it's a fantastic uh, a, a, another you know really great legacy I'm proud of having had a part of.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. And Ojai is just an absolutely beautiful place to live. I think that probably goes without saying. So if you haven't had a chance, check that out. Dwyer Brown, thank you so much for coming on to Believe in Betting Chicago today. Please check out DwyerBrown.com and buy his book. If you build it, trust me, if you even like the movie Field of Dreams just a tiny little bit, you will get so much out of this, not just instructively about the movie, but also about life and about Dwyer's life as well. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, and again, happy belated Father's Day, Dwyer.
1: Thank you. Hey, I love Chicago.
0: Hey, yeah. <laughs> Go White Sox. <laughs>